Season 3 of Around with Stephen Cole is made possible by listeners like you. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash ARWSAC. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Steve Yamada. I'm T. Cole Newton, and coming to you pre-recorded from my mid-city bar, 12 Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. Welcome back, everybody, to a round with Stephen Cole. I'm T. Cole Newton, coming at you as usual from my Mitzibar 12-mile limit. I am here, as usual, with my ever-loving co-host, Steve Yamada, the Shadow King of New Orleans. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a good week. We just kind of got out of festival season here in New Orleans, which is really nice. Uh, it's uh, Currently, while we're recording this, it is Memorial Day, so happy Memorial Day, everybody. Uh, I gotta say, this is, um, it's weird. I don't recall Memorial Day being a big bar time. I kind of went into the weekend thinking that it was going to be a lot slower than it was, but we just got killed downtown. Like, it's really busy in the French Quarter right now, so. Yeah, it seems like there are a lot of tourists in town. Um, we, we, we did pretty well here at 12 Mile. Uh, it was also our kickball party this weekend, which oh, is God. always a nice little boost on maced? a Sunday. Nobody got maced this year. Although, the year that somebody was randomly maced by a member of our home-sponsored team, uh, we also won best after party in the league <laughs> that year. So, I guess it wasn't too bad. I was working at uh, latitude one day and somebody was talking about how kickball is like their passion and they love kickball and it was a couple and the guy was talking about how much they love kickball and I just was like you know I don't like kickball this one time I was at 12 mile and this person like maced the whole bar it was the worst thing ever and then this person's like the, their partner who was with them started like poking them like just poking them in the side <laughs> like, like that and the, and the person was like yeah that was me it was an accident i'm, I'm sorry I, I i feel so bad about that so i, I met the like, guy who makes the bar good I, i'm glad he was contrite about it he was very apologetic after the fact i don't think it was an accident though i think it was a prank <laughs> gone wrong i just don't think he realized what the effect of indoor macing would be it's basically like tear gas in an enclosed yeah, area everyone nice. had to ex- evacuate the bar more or less that was the end of that party uh, but it was a perfect time for the party day. Like so uh, <laughs> don't mace a bar, or else uh, everybody thinks you're a douchebag, and they'll talk about it on a podcast. Yeah, I'm the, he, he was an all right guy, though. I, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty nice. Everyone guy. makes mistakes. Uh, we are here today with my friend, Anne Glaviano. You may know her as DJ Anne Glaviano of <laughs> Heatwave! Exclamation point, dance party. Uh, she, in addition to being a professional DJ, is a dancer and choreographer, a published writer, and a New Orleans... Uh, local and native, which is uh, increasingly rare, it seems, sometimes, Mm -hmm. uh, as as we are often maligned for being a city of transplants. Not that that's entirely bad. Steve and I are both transplants, and we've been fairly welcomed here. Um, But hey, Anne, how you doing today? Happy Memorial Day. I'm I'm great. I'm actually I've been told you're not supposed to say Happy Memorial Day. Ah, solemn and uh, sober Memorial Day to you, Anne. Yeah, it's a solemn and sober. <laughs> We're actually all sober at this moment. Well, it's, it's noon. It's, it's, it's <laughs> noon. I'm time. drinking. I'm actually drinking iced tea, and caffeine is a drug. So. Well, caffeine is a drug. I had a cup of coffee this morning, so I'm pretty loopy. <laughs> I just woke up. I, this is the first thing I've had is just a soda water. So, so oh, well, 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 bubbles, you know. Well oh, hydrated. Yeah. Well hydrated Memorial Day to you. Yes, a well hydrated Memorial Day to you too. Um, Anne here uh, wrote a post on the internet several years ago, I think at this point, that I found very intriguing as a lot of people will tell you that whatever you, A, whatever you study in college is not what you're going to wind up doing and nobody actually works as an artist. 
Uh, meanwhile, Anne, as we noted earlier, is working as several artists. <laughs> as, as a, oh, what's the, is a polymath, I suppose, is one way to describe it. Uh, is in that she is a very competent in a number of different fields and has figured out a way to monetize her skills in these many different fields in a way that society, with air quotes, often says is borderline impossible. And honestly, to a casual observer, seems borderline impossible. So, Anne, uh, how do you do it? Follow-up questions after the break. It's, it's, a very, it's very easy. No, it's... Um, <laughs> well, there's so many layers to it. So, um, I don't remember which post Cole is referencing because I write a lot of things on the internet. She's a very prolific Facebooker. Sort of famously. Before I was a prolific Facebooker, I was I had a blog too. But um so I guess what what is the important context, at least from my story, is that my that my family told me it was gonna be impossible to have a job as a as a writer specifically. We didn't even talk about the dancing because that was obviously <laughs> ridiculous. No no one is a professional dancer. Um and indeed I had never I had never really met a professional dancer um through through high school and I guess um through college. Uh I guess I had met a professional writer, but I, I, I don't know. Somehow that seemed more ach- achievable, but they told, they told me, you know, you'll never, um, what are you studying? I was studying creative writing. I, I chose when I was 17, I grew up, I grew up dancing, um, and being like a, a, a nerdy reader about this. I, I started ballet and, um, I learned to read at the same age and then kind of tracked those simultaneously and was equally interested in performing and writing. Um, and then when I was 17 and I was applying to colleges, I made the decision uh, very pragmatically. I remember like where I was sitting at my desk and the way the light looked when I made the decision to apply to college as a creative writing major because it was more practical mm-hmm. than going into dance or theater. I was like, this is a responsible choice. <laughs> this is a responsible decision. I'm making, I'm making a really grounded choice. to. So I entered college as a creative writing major. And I was a creative writing major all four years. And every Sunday when I saw my family in St. Bernard, um, they would ask me, My I had one uncle in particular who would ask me, what are you studying again? And I'd say creative writing. And he'd say, you know, you're, basically you're never going to make a living. Um, so I heard that for four years. And then I, I graduated the, the weekend before my graduation or right before graduation. I went back to Araby and was visiting with my family. And my uncle again said, what are you? What are you? What did you get your degree in? And I said creative writing. And he said, "I guess that means you'll never be a, a doctor or a lawyer." Oof. And I said, "I guess not." And he said, "What a waste of a brain!" Oh, <laughs> so close with this uncle. Right? <laughs> no, very close. You're gonna listen to gonna listen to this podcast later. I mean, no, they won't. But <laughs> <laughs> what a waste of a brain! What a waste of a brain! I mean, and I like I'll I say that to their face. Um, I I graduated summa cum laude uh, with college honors, and then I got a job as a waitress because I was <laughs> like, I mean, I guess there's nothing else I can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I I considered teaching high school because that was sort of the only thing. And this, so that, so that was a knock on my family. Here's a knock on English departments and humanities, academia in general, is that they don't train you. They don't tell you 
I don't expect them to train you necessarily, but I would expect them to at least tell you what your options are as an mm. English major. And they don't. I mean, academia trains you to be an academic. Um, the, all of the messaging is that, you know, like we, we studied this and we teach so that like, so that's what you can do. You can teach. I like teaching a lot, but, um, I was interested in going to graduate school and getting a degree in creative writing, like an MFA, which is a terminal degree. And then you can teach at a university and la 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 la. But I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to get a job and it seemed like an important skill to have. Mm. <laughs> and, to um, get a, a- a job? Like what kind of job? Did any were, job. Any job. <laughs> I mean, you were waiting tables. And it, That's well, a job. I, I had not I had not actually started. It was before. It was yeah, before. Okay. I was still in school. I had a work study. And I had worked at the mall over Christmas break one time. Like I had I had like worked in my dad's like office. He's an insurance salesman. And um, I had worked in his office doing filing stuff. I had babysat. I mean, I you know, I had taught at summer camp. So I had I had earned income. But to go out in a as a like quote unquote adult. And, um, and, and just apply as a total stranger with no connections or programming, you know, to support student income or whatever, to just be a person in the world on your own, like getting a job seemed like uh, something I didn't know how to do yet. And it seemed, it seemed, um, fundamentally important. And I felt that if I went to graduate school right away, I was just deferring that problem. Mm -hmm. Like I could, I could go straight through, which a lot of, especially like straight up academics, not art, art scholar people but just like phd lit people they all just go straight through and then they defer this issue until <clears throat> they're like 30 and then they're trying to get a tenure track job, job in academia and then they feel like it's their only option and it's tragic um <laughs> <laughs> and i i can i feel like i can confidently say that and i'm not gonna regret saying that on the internet so <laughs> yeah. and i mean it's really that trap of academia as well too when you're just not prepared and you feel very comfortable within that system but like the thing is too which is like even when you get into a graduate program and you may be getting like you know a portion of your uh tuition is like reimbursed to you it's not cheap i mean you're just like piling this like mountain of debt and like on top of you right and well I, I think that's true I am sure that is true in most cases. The a nice thing about creative writing MFA programs, and I this is somehow not true in all MFA programs, so all art masters programs, but in creative writing, the most highly ranked programs that generate the like I guess the hottest authors or whatever, um, are fully funded. Okay. And so kind of as you go down the tier system um, you're starting to pay out of pocket and everyone's like, why would you do, why would you do that? You're never going to earn this money back. Right, <laughs> like, right. Don't, don't take out loans for this. That's dumb. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so my program was fully funded. I had a stipend on top of, so oh, okay. yeah, yeah. And then, and I actually, you, you were paid to go to grad school. I was paid to go to grad school. That's great. I, that's yeah. And then, you know, always, why, why, not always the case, but no, no, yeah. it, but if, if you can, and I could relocate, it was, I went to Ohio state, um, and I was eager to, to go out of state. So, uh, it was it was wonderful. It was a wonderful program. I regret nothing. I did decide. I was like, maybe I'll get a PhD in English after this. And then um, midway through, uh, I was like, the, my my program was amazing, but graduate school and like the graduate school is so infantilizing. I think they is uh, they assume that people are like twenty two and fresh out of undergrad. And I mean, I had worked for five years as a grant writer. I had. 
I had won for my clients more than sixteen million dollars in grants, and they're and they're Solid. treating me like I don't know how to answer email. I'm just like fuck you. It does a lot of. I mean, a lot of pro- programs kind of have to just to, democratically, you know, they have to cater to a lowest common denominator, right? So it's not necessarily the worst thing that the program does that, but the lack well, of flexibility there. The, it's it's but it's infantilizing in the way that when you say infantilizing, it, it's the, the connotation of it is that it's sort of like um, patronizing and and sometimes punitive. And mm. and that was the case. Um, that it it wasn't just like it wasn't hand it wasn't the coddling. It was the um, like I I there was there was something I didn't successfully navigate in their labyrinthine system of bureaucracy that would have triggered my um, fellowship money to come through at a certain time, and I had mi- misunderstood something, and then they send you a reminder email, but they left me off the list, and so I had to pay like a two hundred dollar fine, and I was making money, but a very, very, very small amount of money. Mm. So $200 was significant. And I, um, and I appealed it and appealed it and, and got all these, got this pushback. Like you need to learn to answer your emails. And it was like, motherfucker, you didn't email me. <laughs> and no one emailed me. I went back and anyway. Um, but another example of this, uh, is when I graduated. So this was in the graduate school. So not the department of English and not the creative writing program, which I don't have complaints about at all. Um, but at the, the graduate school, which houses English and all, all of these departments. Um, <clears throat> so I had to go to an advisor with my thesis printed out and formatted and la 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 and, and turn it in and fill out a little form so that I could get my diploma. And uh, it's some office, I've, a building I'd never been to, an office I'd never been to, an advisor I'd never met because, you know, they do things <clears throat> within your department when they're advising you and stuff. So it was not necessary that I'd ever interacted with this person before or ever had been to his office but it was shocking to walk into this dude's office and um his his office was <laughs> literally like wallpapered with these little slips that said things like the dog ate my homework i didn't know when the deadline was like it he, his decor was just excuses excuses <laughs> that he'd heard before and that was like you you walk into that for like assistance <laughs> i cannot imagine a more hostile environment <laughs> so when i say infantilizing that's what i mean <laughs> okay I, I did not do well in college um and i dropped out pretty quickly but like and that was one of the things that just kind of like blew my mind a little bit and like with professors um i went to tulane for for a little bit um was just like you're paying money these people this isn't like public school education like i almost give like a pass on like public school education which is like well you know nobody's really making too much money and like you know, the, the, yeah, the administrators are yeah well mm. but then it's just like you know in in college it's just like you're paying a lot of money you know this is like i'm at tulane i'm paying fifty thousand dollars a year it's just like no you're supposed to be helping me right now it's like if i'm and I'm like a waiter, like, you know, I'm a waiter bartender in my career right now. Like, uh, if somebody comes in and like, I'm not doing what they tell me to do, like I'm doing a bad job. Right. right. And it's just like, you know, I have to get somebody their food and drinks. It's like, it's like, you have to give me the education, put it into my brain right now. I think part of the mindset behind that is that the actual paying customer in, a, in a, in a university setting isn't a student, it's the parent. So the, the, the professors and the administrators aren't beholden to the student's interest. They're, they want to, like assuming that they are also still effectively babysitting these children. I mean, not that an eighteen to twenty-two year old or however old. Oh, they need to be babysitting. They, 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 they do to a certain extent. Yeah, I hear about so this you, shit all the yeah, time. Yeah, the, the parents probably would want them to be like, no, don't let my ki- ch- children give you those excuses. Oh yeah, yeah. Usually this argument kind of goes another way, which is that yeah, I, I'm with. <laughs> um, 
that that is more interesting to me, Cole. This idea of like don't don't coddle my child, like teach them to be a, a fucking adult. What what ends up happening, I think, is there's this kind of entitlement of of the kid being like, well, you know, I I am the customer, and like you, my professor, are actually like the the, the service worker, and like I want it my way. Mm. Um, which which is kind of a yeah, that doesn't that dynamic doesn't doesn't play that well in a classroom. Yeah, everything about it is weird. I literally remember, and and also there is a like a gender parity issue in academia that I don't know. It it wasn't so much. I was stalked in grad school. Someone in my cohort, like in my fiction cohort of six people, <laughs> with uh, like pretty much right away started um, harassing me and like showed up at my house at two thirty in the morning and pounded on the door for half an hour. I've written on the internet about it. If you Google me uh, or go to my website and you can read all about it. But I, I don't know. I don't know where this feeling came from. It wasn't, it wasn't like I felt um, somehow oppressed by my department or something, but um, at Ohio state, the, in the English department, they have apparently a very good, like competitive, uh, uh, impressive, gender parity rate of 50%. And that doesn't mean 50-50. That means there's half as many female professors <laughs> as there are men. Ah. And that's really good. And I remember, again, where I was standing in the English building, what the light looked like when I had the thought, like, I, I'm i getting my master's degree and I'm getting the fuck out of academia. Mm -hmm. And, like, someone needs to burn this shit down and start over. And that that is going to be someone's life's work, and it is not going to be me. Betsy hmm. DeVos, right? Burn down education, <laughs> education as we know it. No, I, I just, that just there there are these these, these rigid ins paradigms, yeah, institutional kinda... things that I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the solution for it, and I I, I felt some guilt about leaving the. Uh, it just seems shitty to complain about a system that you think isn't isn't functioning to complain about it and then to leave it instead of to stay and help. Yeah. I think you know? it's more healthy though. Honestly, like there's sometimes where it's just like, you know, dedicating, like, you know, if you don't have the, the, the ability to de dedicate your life and your time and everything like that too. And like, there yeah. are people who try to do that too. And it's just, it's you bang know, their head against a wall well, for their entire life. It's or, not a happy life. It's, or it's that, that's that it's that person's calling to stay and, and do that work. My, mm -hmm. my calling was to make art and not to, and, and to advocate and to advocate in other in other communities and other capacities. Well, let's talk yeah. about that then. We yeah. can we can yeah. deconstruct the problems with, uh, <laughs> with higher education all day long. <laughs> maybe that's maybe we can have you back for another podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. So you talked a bit about before going to grad school, you were working as so you you got a job as a waitress. So I got a job as a, I got but a, a then job as a waitress. Yeah, you. Uh, we're pretty quickly able to find work as a freelance grant writer. How does that work? Because that you, yeah. I remember that being part of the Facebook post. That yeah. I, I remember better than you do apparently <laughs> um is that being a freelance grant writer which you still do right yes um was a was a major part of how you are able to subsidize your other artistic yes. pursuits while simultaneously exercising your writing chops in a way that is not necessarily creative writing but at least is a way to be a professional writer yes so i have so many things to say about that as an example of how hungry i was for examples of what writers could do to make money um I knew I could teach high school. I knew I could teach college. And I had my first ever fiction teacher at LSU. She was a third year grad student. Her name's Ronlin Domingue. She lives in Baton Rouge. What's up, Ronlin? Um, <laughs> she also is a published writer. She was my first fiction teacher and she had been a grant writer. And 
she just mentioned that one day in class. She also mentioned that she was an MFA student and I was like, oh, that's the degree I get after this. I didn't, I didn't know. I thought maybe I just got like a PhD in English or something. So she changed my life in two very important ways, at least two very important ways. Um, and I didn't really know what a grant writer was at the time. I just was like, she is a writer and she made money. <laughs> mental note, like deep mental note. And I didn't ever even really look it up. I just had it in the back of my mind as like, maybe one day I'll like get, get a book from Barnes and Noble on grant writing and figure out what that is. And maybe I can make some money. Um, so then I started an application a couple years later, I was graduating. I, I started an application for teach for America, decided to bail, didn't want to do a program. Um, looked at some other like high school teaching gigs, decided not to go for it. Uh, decided to just be a waitress and figure it out and thought maybe I'll go to Barnes and Noble and get a book about grant writing. And one of my professors uh, had given me a book recommendation um, was Birds of America by Mary McCarthy, which was my favorite novel for many years. It was so, so good. And so when I finished it, I emailed him and I was like, thank you so much for this book recommendation. It was amazing. He wrote back right away. He was like, Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. And then he wrote back again and was like, do you by any chance have any interest in grant writing? Huh. <laughs> uh huh. And he serendipitous. I know. And he he I uh his name's Rick Moreland, he's amazing. Um he and I had talked about he you know, he's like, What are your plans after you graduate? And I was like, Well, I want to get an MFA, but I explained all my anxiety about getting a job and not wanting to defer the problem of like how to make a living. Um so he knew I was gonna waitress and he knew I wanted to to live abroad for a year, and so he had recommended that book um for that reason pretty much. And so he, so he knew, I, he knew my plan was to wait tables and I'm waiting tables. And he was, so I think this is why he thought of me like, Hey, and also why don't you do consider this other thing? And it was his friends. They were starting a new, um, an evaluation firm. So the way that funding, funding works, uh, in grant land, nonprofit land, um, there's like money from entities. So like corporations and government agencies at every level, local, state and federal family foundations, family foundations. Um, and so, so they have, they have money that they want to distribute for philanthropic purposes. Um, and they'll decide like what fields they're interested in funding. And then the, um, a nonprofit, will say, okay, so we have this program. Do you want to give us money? And if they say yes, they give you the money. And then your nonprofit takes the money, does the work that you said you were going to do. And then you re the nonprofit reports back and says, okay, so we said we were going to do this with your money. And we, we did. And these were the results. We reached uh, this many people. We saw this change or this not change. Um, and then the funder gets to decide like, okay, so that seemed like that was a good use of our resources. We'll keep funding that kind of work. Or if it's something where they're trying to see like, if this, if this kind of do after school programs make a, a significant difference in kids reading ability, if they're given more time with um, tutoring help, do, do they, do their test scores go up? And so it can even be something where the evaluation for those programs can change government policy for whether or not the federal government continues to fund after school programming. So the place I was working was an evaluation firm. They were doing the um, determining like whether or not there were statistically significant results. But at, at any rate, their interest was in evaluation and, um, and then publishing journal articles to, to potentially shift the trajectory of, um, of funding streams to, towards. So basically like dare is like the classic example of like 
pouring a lot of government resources into a program that was not effective, mm-hmm. like famously ineffective and not just like ineffective, like ha 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 dare was stupid, like but counterproductive. Um, like when you, stu- when they studied it, it was not, a, it didn't do the things that it said, you know, it was going to do. So, um, and, and people who, I, it's hard to imagine anyone right now being like, yeah, uh, you know, it doesn't matter who's president, like everything, it's all, everything stays the same, but um, at least when I was in my early twenties, I had friends who would say like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican in the white house. Cause nothing changes. And I was like, well, I can actually tell you that government funding streams, federal funding streams do change depending on who is in charge. For example, like risk reduction programs for, um, like needle share programs, uh, were not funded under W Bush. Um, and actually Obama did not manage to get them funded, but there's a, but there was pushback team. Teen pregnancy prevention programs, like uh, sex education programs, if they had federal dollars, had to be abstinence only, even though there's a lot of research saying that abstinence only programs don't um, have the results. Like use, that they use, don't work. Yeah, they don't have useful, <laughs> useful results. Uh, results spiking STD rates. Right, right, like right. So, and then under Obama, I do think that the uh, funding was was permittable. Like you could you could use you could use actual sex education programming and use government dollars. So you heard it here first. Uh, first, your vote matters. <laughs> your vote matters. Yeah. Hot take. Hot. <laughs> lukewarm, lukewarm take. So anyway, that's a very wonky response to like, what is grant writing? So what is grant writing? Grant writing is. Um, someone has to write the proposal to the funder and the funder has questions, which is understandable at a baseline. Like if you're going to have 5,000 other dollars or 10,000 other dollars or 1.5 million other dollars, uh, what do you like, what are you going to do with the money and their parameters that you have to uh, stay within? And so nonprofits don't always have, um, the capacity or, uh, either time or the skill set to successfully complete these applications. Um, so I was working at a third party firm where they would hire out and we would consistently work with the same clients over time. But so I, I was writing HIV AIDS grants and education grants, um, after school grants. Uh, and I did some grant research for a, a hospital system also. Um, and the interesting thing about that work is not only did it, I use my writing chops um, and my editing chops and make money, but also, uh, there's something about writing a short story where you're n- <laughs> you're never to- totally sure if it's good or like finished, um, and you tell yourself that art matters. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in when you're writing a grant, there's like a rubric and a checklist, <laughs> and you know when it's done because you answered all the questions thoroughly and you know when it's good because you answered all the questions thoroughly do you get a level of creative satisfaction from a well-written grant or is it really just the i get but i've been reading pleasure activism and i looked up the author's name before i got here because i I knew it was going to come up because i can't stop talking about it it's by adrian marie brown and um among the many great things in this book is uh this notion that um work you can derive pleasure from work uh that it's it's kind of uh decoupling like erotic pleasure from like the bedroom that you you can experience like deep physical like all these kinds of satisfactions and, and pleasures from all sorts of things and that like uh 
doing satisfying work is a kind of pleasure. And I, I experienced very deep pleasure from grant writing. Um, it's satisfying in a lot of ways, like, like composing, it's all persuasive writing. Um, and because you're working with nonprofits who's, um, with, I think really great missions, uh, and the people who work there who are doing that work have to have like their hair on fire. They have to be so passionate about it because they're all overworked and underfunded universally. Um, so being around people like that is a pleasure. It's really inspiring. Um, I, my job is to kind of interview them and get a sense of what they're, what they're after and why they're doing it and why they think it matters. And then like capturing that in the language. And so when I can do that, I feel a lot of pleasure. Um, and then they get money and then they do awesome work. It's like <laughs> so satisfying. It's so satisfying. So it's also deadline driven and I have a lot of adrenaline about that. Yes. All right. Uh, we're going to roll into a break and we'll come back and talk about some of your other artistic pursuits or actually <laughs> any, any, any of your artistic <laughs> pursuits because right now we've covered academia and the nonprofit world. Um, but I was curious about what uh, do you, when you do grant writing, do you yeah. work on commission or do you oh, get no. a flat fee? No, neither. I do it hourly. I do it hourly. And it's considered unethical in most grant circles to take a cut. Um, and the people are like, well, you know, but it's a million dollar grant or it's like a ten thousand dollar grant. It's like I don't care how much the grant is for. It doesn't make me work any harder. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bust my ass uh, for the number of hours it is required to finish the grant and just pay me for that. And so that's how I get paid. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like being a bartender, right? You make a Ramos gin fizz, you pour a glass of wine, you know, still get a dollar too, <laughs> pretty much. Right. All right, well, let's head into break, and we'll be back in just a second. All right, faithful listeners, welcome back to The Midshift, our brand new segment for Season 3, in which we uh, update y'all on some news about the show, as well as help you get in contact with our guests. If you find them to be interesting, if you want to support them and their endeavors, this is a great way in order to find out more about the guests who appear on our show. Yeah, our guest today, Anne Glaviano, also known as DJ Anne Glaviano, has a website, you guessed it, anglaviano.com. You can find her writing, you can find more information about her work as a dancer, and you can find links to uh, information about upcoming DJ performances. If you want just to hear those spoken out loud by us, DJ performances by DJ Ann Glaviano uh, are at her Heatwave dance party, second Saturday of every month at 12 Mile Limit, and fourth Saturday of every month at OK Bar. Right on. It's a great time. Uh, it's uh, especially during the summertime. It's a good time to jump into a, a, a dance floor and get nice and sweaty to some oldies music. Uh, meet some people. Yeah, I'm into it. That's, yeah. that's always a good time. Like, is the temperature inside 12 Mile Limit during Heat Wave is always exactly the same. No matter what the temperature is outside, inside it will be about 89 degrees and high humidity. It's, it's moist. It's, it's, definitely, it's, it's moist. definitely moist. In there. But yeah, it's, it's worth it. It makes it feel more intimate. And if you don't want us to say words like moist on our podcast from now on, consider becoming one of our supporters on our Patreon page. Uh, you can find that page at patreon.com backslash A-R-W-S-A-C. You're getting so much better at saying strings of letters. We really need the money. We cannot produce this without uh, a few online subscriptions, uh, which Steve has maintained very diligently, and the mountain of cocaine that's required to just get through uh, an hour of witty banter. That's what makes us an 18 and plus show. Yeah, that's true. Cocaine jokes. Uh, anyways, let's get back to the show. All right. And welcome back to the second half of this episode of Around with Stephen Cole. I'm joined, of course, with my co-host. Cole Newton. And we've got a fantastic guest. Who is? Anne Glaviano. 
Alrighty. Um, so I think we're going to transition a little bit more into uh, what you're doing now with your life, and So uh, Cole had a, uh, a great question that he wanted to kind of like deposit to kind of bring <laughs> this entire episode together to, uh, to our thesis statement. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, people say it's impossible to be a working artist, and you are putting a lie to that. Um, but it probably is, at times at least, kind of difficult. And I think there's a question that I sometimes struggle with myself as an entrepreneur, and Every now and then I come up with a different answer. It depends on how the last week went (laughs) as much as anything else. But it's, do you ever wish you just had a job? Basically, like, do you ever wish you had, like, an employer? And the answer is, fuck no. (laughs) (laughs) I said the same thing when I quit 12 Mile Limited. Oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, shit. No, I, so, um, for, I don't, so, okay. I, I have artist friends who I have coached into self-employment. And then I feel a lot of uh, horror and responsibility because I'm like, oh my God, what if it doesn't work? And then they're destitute. What's your success rate? Um, so far, so good. Have none of them have reverted back to traditional employment? None of them have reverted back to traditional mm. employment. Um, the women more often take me up on it than men, which mm-hmm. I find interesting. I, I'm always... I am more sensitive to this now than I was when I started exhorting my friends to be self-employed, which is um, I do think there's some temperament involved and some um, like, so, so there's like a whole conversation about, I don't know, privilege and structural oppression that I, um, we probably will not get into today, but just to acknowledge some of that. And then there's, there's also just like, um, I, I feel very, anxious when i am employed by someone i feel simultaneously like i fucking hate being told what to do <laughs> and i'm constantly anxious that everyone is mad at me and that i'm being disappointing and i live in that place the whole time i also think that employer employee dynamics often and i mean this more in like cubicle land though i will say in my experience in the service industry and i've worked in a couple of different restaurants i i suspect that this is not the case with cole um but I I see a lot of micromanaging happening and I think it feels like shit for everyone that the people who, who are generally managing um, not the owner, but the, the managers are, are just like up everyone's asses and treating them. It's another infantilizing thing. I just, it doesn't, I don't think it feels good for anyone, but I really can't deal with it. So I feel like I'm not really wired. I, I feel like the employer employee relationship is like the employer's job is to assume that the employee is not doing their job and and that the employee is trying to like get away with something and what i prefer is the like uh the client like consultant relationship where the client comes to me and is like i need help with something you seem like you're good at this can you help me and i'm like yeah i can help you and then at the end of it they not only pay me but they thank me so this, <laughs> is, this is how so so that the other thing that happened in terms of transitioning into self-employment and freelance work was that um when when you're no one people don't really work 40 hours a week in a cubicle like they're not actually doing 40 productive hours of work the studies show people on average productively work 14.4 hours a week on average in those nine to five jobs so it just ends up and it feels like that when you're sitting at a desk in a cubicle i did medical copy editing for seven months and then i I ran screaming i knew i knew it was going to be bad on my way in and it was bad um I'm not going to name the place that I was working, but it was, it was a terrible experience. So, uh, it, I, I basically to make art and I have to make art to be happy. And when I say happy, I mean like not suicidally depressed, like sane. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah like it's it's essential and 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 it's like it's hard and it's like if you it's a compulsion do you think that i've I've heard other artists in in different media describe that that sort of artistic temperament and that they have a hard time dating people who aren't artists and things like that because you just people don't understand that compulsive almost congenital need to create it is it's and it's like it feels like such a curse it's like why can't i just like be a cog in a wheel and then go home and go to happy hour <laughs> like, that, that sounds yeah. nice yeah. you know it, it really does but it's just not you put in your hour at the salt mine or whatever right and then, and then go, go, home. And, yeah, go home but i i increasingly feel like that um that probably isn't satisfying to too many people. I don't know. Anyway, it's not satisfying for me. So what I realized was I needed to make money as fast as possible and then free up the rest of my time to make art. And the shift for me to make sure that this higher education conversation was not totally off topic because it really wasn't. Before grad school, I felt like writing was something I did in my free time and dancing was something I did in my free time. And something shifted while I was getting my master's degree so that when I came home and I was working the same schedule where I was working a nine to five and then going home and in my free time, quote unquote, dancing and writing and making my first ever dance piece. And uh, I was also at that point DJing, which we can get into, but um, I no longer considered my art making time to be free time. It was labor. It was real labor. It was maybe labor I was doing on spec to be compensated you know, upon publication or whatever, but it was not free time. And so in fact, I was not working 40 hours a week and then doing like hobbies in my free time. I was working like 60 hours a week and I was exhausted and I was like, okay, this is not sustainable. Do you credit grad school with helping you make that transition? Because one of the things I was thinking about earlier is, hey, you go to grad school to do something that you were already probably pretty competent at before. So what exactly, what was the advantage of grad school? Was it just helping you get that mindset that this is work in and of itself i mean so many things Uh, having i was i was competent enough but um it's really for writing programs i feel i feel it's probably different in different disciplines but certainly for writing programs it's like an apprenticeship period um i had very very supportive faculty who i mean and and a cohort of other writers and we shared work and critiqued it for three years and um my writing improved dramatically. I learned tons of things. Um, and yeah, I took myself more seriously as a writer at the end. I mean, well, I think some of it was just like going in, like wanting to believe that I was a writer, but feeling like embarrassed to say it, like I'm a writer. Uh, and by <laughs> that's the that's how you should say it. I, feel I actually, I feel that way right now. I'm working on a novel and I, it's hard to say that without going, oh, I'm working on a novel. <laughs> novel. Oh, my novel. Well, I read your novella. It was really good. Oh, thanks. It's called Dick Beer. Everybody should read it. <laughs> if anyone had gay punk rock friends in high school, it's the book for you. It really is. It's uh, You can download it on Amazon for 99 cents. Oh, that's a steal. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty gross, though. Um, <laughs> it's about boys living in a dormitory. So you can imagine. That's gross. It, it's very, <laughs> very gnarly. Uh, there's a playlist, too, um, as, as one would expect from a DJ. Um, yeah, so it, so it, it was it was a gradual shift, and it, it wasn't like they give you a degree and you're like, I'm a writer, capital W. But I, I did, it was it certainly was a gift of that period to to come out of it feeling like I actually need, I need more time to work on this. Um, and I can't, I can't be like shoving it into the end of my day and treating it like a hobby or something. Do you feel like being, um, doing the freelance grant writing that helped you value your work a little bit better as well, being a creative writer? I mean, I, f- I find like a big problem with a lot of people transitioning to kind of monetizing and embracing their, their hobbies as like something they can make a living off of is that, um, 
they don't value like what they have to provide. That, they've been doing it for free for so long. Right. They exactly. don't. They feel bad about selling it. Yeah, that kind of thing. I have so God, we could really we could talk for so many hours about this <laughs> stuff. I have so many thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to actually reframe it not in the context of grant writing, but in the context of valuing my my other work um, as a across the board as a self employed person. My advice to people when they're starting out is just you're going to lowball yourself at first. Mm-hmm. You don't know how much your work is worth until you um, until you set a rate making your best estimate for what you can get like what the what the market can bear or whatever however you uh, you make your best guess you do the job and then my personal test for all for all money things is I do the work and then I check in with myself in my my boundaries live in my stomach <laughs> and it's a very uh, distinct sensation of rage <laughs> when when um when boundaries get crossed and so i check in i do the work and then i check in and i go how mad do i feel <laughs> <laughs> i i made this much money for this work and now, now i did the work and here's the money how do i feel am i how mad am i and then if i'm not mad i did a good <laughs> job of setting the rate and if i am mad i think okay if i did that again if i got 10 more dollars Mm, do I still feel mad? I'm still mad. Okay, twenty more dollars. I'm serious. This no, is no, this is really good. This is valuable. Yeah. This is very, very like earnest. Um, if I got fifty more dollars for this work, what what's the number? And there's a number, and I get to it, and I'm like, okay, next time this is what I'm going to charge. And it's it does it has never failed me. <laughs> so when you had started out, and I think that you know a good portion of our listeners are bartenders, and a big portion with modern like craft cocktail bartending is you know being published, um, you know having recipes published, mm-hmm. getting into you know newsletters, doing consultation works, and things like that. And I think there's a good parallel between you know that artistic creative endeavor as well. Um, when you were first starting off. Uh, what were your thoughts on, you know, doing things for free or for exposure? Okay, so this is, I'm so so excited to talk about this. Oh, I love it. <laughs> we actually talked about this, we talk about this pretty, re- pretty I often. I love it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, we have different thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, the exposure, I think that sometimes works. Um, oh, God, we have so many things to say. So, uh, remind me to talk about the gift economy. I'll get back to that. But in the... Um, I want to give you an example of the the rate for so so as a self employed person I I negotiate my own rates but as a writer I'm sort of like a creative writer I'm working within a, an existing system of publication and compensation where there's it feels like there's less room to negotiate I really want to be published there are outlets that I really want to be published in and they pay certain rates period the end so I don't get to like with a grant like one-on-one i can tell you like okay this is my rate i can do it for this much cole cole and i talk about the dj gig like event rates and um i have my rate and we negotiate uh feels feels less possible that could just be my um received narrative about publishing and, and money but it it feels like um and and the hours that i spend crafting an essay or a short story Compared to the amount of time I put in on a grant, I mean, I spend way longer writing a story. Way, way longer. The amount of time you spend, I don't know, creating a, a cocktail and refining it. Hours and hours. Um, and then they're going to offer you 100 bucks or 200 bucks to be published on the internet. Or, I mean, the very highly regarded literary magazine published one of my stories. I got $500 for that. I spent like a year on it. You know, mm. uh, it's it's not good. That story ended up in Best American Short Stories and I got $750 for a reprint for a book that they sell in every airport in America. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so okay, so so what's 500 plus 750? 1250. Okay. 
Good job, Cole. Thanks. I, I looked at Cole because you seem like a math nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at arithmetic. That's the only kind of math I know. <laughs> He's a businessman. Yeah. Um, so 1250, remember that number. Um, I write things, as we have mentioned, on the internet uh, for people to read for free all the time. I, I Because I just, I like, I don't know, I got a lot of stuff to express. Um, so uh, about... A year and a half ago, there was a big to-do about Aziz Ansari and um, a piece that went up in an online, whatever, a website. Um, Isabel, maybe? Or? No, it was something else. I can't remember. But so, to not to get super into that, but basically I wrote a response. It was long and thorough and personal. Um, and I, and it went viral. And people kept saying to me, you should get this published. You should get this published. It's a Facebook post, okay? It's on the internet. It's free. It's written for Facebook, which is a certain mode of writing. Mm -hmm. Um, You should get it published. And I had already been down this route for the piece I'd written about being stalked in grad school. You should get this published. You should get this published. And I go shop it around the the, the Jezebel, Lala, all the sites. And I know what their rates are. And I know what it feels like to beg for these people to publish something I've already written. And I, and I know the clickbait headlines that can get put, slapped on these things and the kinds of trolls that can come up in comments and the sites don't protect you and you're writing about really personal like sexual violence experiences. And, uh, and I was like, um, there's no, and I, and it, it involved, it involved, uh, an incident that I didn't necessarily want to be linked to my name in Google forever. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, y- y'all, that's so sweet. I know you mean this as a compliment that I should rewrite this Facebook post for, to be published online somewhere else, but you don't, you don't know <laughs> what, what that means and how, how little I'm going to get paid for it. They basically were like, you should be compensated for this work. And I was like, that's such a nice thing to say. And as it started to go viral, I was like, all right, it's now or never. And I put a paper PayPal tip jar on that Facebook post. Hmm. And I was just like, look, people are saying like, I'm a, I'm a professional writer. I do write things for publication. People are saying I should publish this so I can get paid for it. And I'm telling you for a lot of reasons that, that it doesn't really make sense for me to do that. But if you want, if this post served you in some way, you can tip me. You, you can buy me a cup of coffee or a pizza. Or pay for my next therapy session. <laughs> whatever, whatever floats your boat. Those are the tears. Right yeah, right, there. right. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't even know if I, I think I probably did make the therapy joke, but um, so I put the tip jar on there. And Cole, how much did I make for my best American short story? One thousand two hundred and fifty dollars. I made over fourteen hundred dollars on a fucking Facebook post. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this, this generation we live in, am I right? Well, so, but I'll say this. What I learned from that is, and people, people tipped me $2. They tipped me $50. They wrote thank you notes. The experience of having your audience communicate with you directly and tell you how much the thing that you made was worth to them as opposed to when it's mediated by a publisher where they tell you the value of the thing that you made. I mean, it was eye-opening. And I, I don't, I mean, I think it's like a great argument for being self-published. Unfortunately, with literary writing, you really need like the gatekeeper model of, you know. So so I, I don't know. But but this this question of like, how do you how do you value your work? Sometimes it's doing these like experiments. Um, I mean, that's a Facebook post that I had published for free and people read for free and they could have read for free and then they threw in. So, um yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I also don't think that the goal of any of this is to like make all the money, but it is nice to to labor over something and have people honor that with the symbol of respect in this culture of capitalism, which is 
you know, dollars. dollars. Yeah. 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 That's a perfect answer. (laughs) That answers my question. It's it's good to get that perspective as well, too, because I think, you know, I mean, there isn't a complete separation between like, you know, the service industry, any creative industry, like where you are producing a product. And like, Mm -hmm. I think that's important in just making sure that you're not giving it away for free or being taken advantage of or valuing your own work as well. Can I only circle back to the gift economy thing too, Mm. to tag that on. So, so on the one hand, and and maybe it's not separate, right? I offered I offered it for free, and people had the option to um, to respond with um, with money to tip me or whatever to thank me, um, and they thanked me verbally and they thanked me with their dollars. Uh, I was reading a, an essay collection called Braiding Sweetgrass, and I cannot remember the author's name, um, but she has something in there. She's a Native American writer, and she has um, a bit in there about um, the gift economy. So there's a transactional economy where um, I have a, a water bottle and and you have uh, five dollars and and I say this water bottle is worth five dollars and you're like I have that and then we make the exchange and there's like nothing it's like a zero sum like it's done it's finished it's clean it's even and then both parties walk away and that encounter is over and that in the gift economy. Um, whether whether you're doing an exchange where there's like something is acknowledged as being of more value than what the other person has at the moment um what but basically this idea that at the end of the exchange in a gift exchange what's what's left is a relationship mm-hmm. and it's it's not so much that the now it's like well now you owe me but it's maybe a little bit of I mean, you can think of it as like an obligation, but you can also think of it as like, we're going to have a future encounter Mm -hmm. because of the nature of this exchange. And I really, I find that to be true. And it's actually how I do a lot of my, my art making life depends on this kind of gift economy um, of, of trades and, um, and people who, who offer like in kind uh, support and, um, and it and it facilitates a kind of community building that um, makes my life like way more beautiful. Uh, so, so yeah. So, so monetizing is important, and getting paid for your labor is important, and also building community is important. And so, sometimes doing these exchanges, um, and, and I guess it depends on if it's for exposure and you feel like you're being taken advantage of, or if you feel like you're helping a, a, a friend out with a new a podcast or a new publication or, or whatever. So there's ways to, to give your time and your services to people and, um, and build something, build a relationship out of it that I think is really nice. Awesome. Yeah, yeah that's perfect. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good time to kind of wrap up with the thing that um, I, I felt we would talk a little bit more about, but uh, uh, being <laughs> DJ and Glaviano, uh, I thought we would be talking about the DJing stuff a little bit more, but uh, why don't we touch on that a little bit as well? Uh, how did you get into uh, being a DJ? And why don't you tell us for those who are listening right now, uh, what kind of DJing you do? Um, I play records from 1957 to 1974, um, and they're mostly dance jams. Is there any particular what? Why the 1974 cutoff date? Uh, because the technology changes um, uh, that happened in the mid 70s. There's something I, I play post swing pre disco because of my own genre preferences, and I and I cut off at 74 because after after 74, the it just starts to sound like things were recorded in a different kind of room. And that's not literally what happened, but basically from 57 to 74, it kind of sounds like no matter if you're playing rockabilly, if you're playing, you know, R and B or soul or funk uh, or pop, it all sounds like it, 
the air in the room sounds the same. Like the silences sound the same. It sounds like they could have all been hanging out in one room and like recording this music. But after 74, the air sounds different mm. <laughs> and you can hear sort of a tonal shift. There's a, it's just production values. It just sounds like it was recorded in a, di- you can, you can hear it instantly. It sticks out and some people mix that stuff and it sounds cool, but it's not something that interests me. So I just don't, um, I'm, and I'm pretty, it's pretty firm about it. <laughs> like I check um, if I hear a cool song and it was recorded in 1976. I'm like, Oh, that's just, that's such a shame. <laughs> Were you a record collector no. Uh, before? No. So no. you, you started DJing and then you started collecting. Indeed. Your records. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had some of my dad's records, but only a few. Um, uh, so I started DJing in grad school. I was making $17,600 before taxes. That was my fellowship. Stipend. That's a living wage, right? <laughs> <laughs> for a per, for one person in central Ohio, it might be. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were eating peanut butter, but it was fine. So uh, I did that, and then I was also freelance copy editing on the side. Mm. Um, and then I was very, very homesick. And this, I'm like on the record in a lot of places saying this, but I was really homesick, and I missed Mob Night, and I had been um, friends with Kristen and Maddie and spending a lot of time with them. And so... I started Googling because these soul nights exist like all over the country. It's not special to New Orleans. And I was like, surely, I mean, Columbus is like the 15th biggest city in the United States. Like surely someone is doing this and they weren't. And so after eight months of being extremely homesick, um, uh, I was like, I guess, I guess I'll just fucking start my own dance party. Was, was that the longest period of time you'd lived outside of Louisiana? No, I lived in Spain for eight months. Um, I, yeah, that's the only time I had. I had I'd lived outside of New Orleans, but um, yeah, I lived in Spain for a little while before that. Okay. Um, but the the permanent nature of or the three, you know, it was a three year program. I don't know why I was just I was just I guess in Spain there was other stuff to to cultural <laughs> culture cultural experience. No, there's, there's not a lot of culture in Ohio. You know, <laughs> in Columbus, it's it's a college town. It's so much a college town, and the the turnover is so high, and that people are so hungry for cool things to do. I don't know. It was it was really great. So anyway, I made my offering. I I wanted to dance. I had a friend who was a nerdy nerdy record collector, and um, he, I basically I went out. I decided on a Friday night that I was going to make this dance party happen despite having not records or gear, having never DJed before, not even totally <laughs> sure how to cue a record, uh, use a mixer. So I, I texted my friend. I was like, hey, you want to go to this show with me tomorrow night? And I have a proposition for you. And I asked him uh, at the show if he wanted to start this dance party. And he was like, I can't bring up my records. They're so expensive. And what if someone steals them? And I was like, well, I don't know, but all I can think is there must be a way to solve that problem because people have been bringing their records out since the beginning of DJing. (laughs) Surely we can find a way for people not to steal your records. And then the next day I went to play bar trivia um, for the first time ever at this bar down the street from my apartment. And I sat next to this guy. We were shooting the shit and I was like, you know, what do you do? He's like, oh, I do this and that and I'm a drummer. It's like, oh, you know, what kind of music? He said like Motown. I was like, oh, I'm starting a Motown dance party. And he's like, you're really freaking me out right now. It's been my dream for two years to start a Motown dance party. And I was drunk. And I was like, do you have <laughs> records? And he was like, yeah. I was like, do you want to do it with us? He was like, yeah. He's like, 
can we call it heat wave? I was like, sure. Cause I was going to call it like hot dance party Columbus. I, mean, I had <laughs> no, it's a much better name. Well, it's yeah, a great name. It, it is it's a great song. It is. I mean, it he, works really well. He has such good taste. Anyway, he ended up being our graphic designer for our posters. Oh, cool. Chris, uh, the one who's a record collector had probably the most records and also um, fronted the money for the turntables and we all put in for the mixer. So it was a three, a three DJ party situation once a month. And by the second month we had like 300 people through the door. People used to wait in line in the snow to get into like, which I just wanted to go outside and be like, what are you doing? It's not that cool. (laughs) Like (laughs) I wouldn't, I I started this party because I really wanted to go to it, and I wouldn't wait in snow for this. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? So anyway, and I I so I started it because this is I guess another like entrepreneurial whatever tip. But I started it because I I was homesick and I wanted to go out dancing to that music, and we ended up between the three of us taking home $1,800 a night Mm -hmm. and splitting that three ways. So I would get $600 that paid my rent and bills through grad school. I mean, I think that's the, when you talk about that being an entrepreneurial uh, fact, the entrepreneurial factor in that is that you, you wanted a thing to exist. So you created that thing. You clearly weren't the only person who wanted that thing to exist. And I think that's one of the things that we talk about being an entrepreneur or an artist or anything else where you're sort of like creating something wholesale from nothing it's like, if you want it, odds are somebody else right. does too. Mm-hmm. And also that it was really clear that it wasn't like a money-making scheme. It wasn't like, you know, it would be hip. <laughs> <laughs> what are the we, kids into these days? What are the kids into these My days? My charts tell me. Right? No, <laughs> yeah. it just... It, it Chubby was, checker. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're just twisting all night. <laughs> and yet, and yet they were. They were. So, mm. so, yeah, it is. It was It was just a very cl- like clear expression of like who we were and what we were excited about. And people uh, responded to that. And it's still going in Columbus. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. So they still have Heat Wave up there, mm-hmm. and then you've moved that down here. And I moved it down here. Cole's Bar was the first place I did it in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it's uh, And in fact, Lefty Parker from Euclid Records went up to Ace of Cups, which is where we, we DJed and where Heat Wave still exists in Columbus, and he saw the posters for it. He's like, is it a franchise? <laughs> I was like, no, those are the only two places in the world where this uh, party exists. You just happen to be in You should business. franchise it. I mean, every small town has like a, a nice dance party. My, one around. of my dreams, actually, and y'all holler at me if anyone wants to make this a reality, is to do like a small town tour. And, uh, oh, with, let's yeah, do it. I really yeah. just like like little because I it's like well what do I want to do next with DJing like I I don't it's not like I want to be in a big venue like that wouldn't feel right. I just you don't really, want to be in stadiums. <laughs> can you? It's just hard. It's hard to find like role models for DJs that don't seem like douchebags. <laughs> oh yeah, no, right. I know, I know. Uh, yeah. I would only agree to this if we could find a town like the town from Footloose <laughs> and host a dance party on the other side of the right, city line. Right, the right, only way, right. only way I would agree. I'm this. sure this is possible. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think um, it's really cool. The last thing I really want to touch on is, you know, at the very beginning of the show, we, we did bring up the fact that you are born and raised. You are a New Orleanian. Yes. Uh, that's something that uh, is very... You know, I hate to say rare, no, but like, please you know, it makes me want to vomit and cry. It's, it's <laughs> tough. I mean, I think so much of you know the equity of the city is kind of like is taken up by you know transplants. It's just like so much of the artistic licensing and like the creativity. It's like there's so many people from out of town who take up so much room with that. You had mentioned that you were inspired by the mod dance parties that were down here. Was that 
at the Circle Bar or the Saturn? It was at Circle, and I'm trying to remember if it was someplace before it was at Circle, and then it moved to Saturn, and now it's back at Circle and Saturn. Um, you but brought yeah, that up, yeah, and I was like, I had yeah. this like moment in my head because like my first uh, memories of like hanging out down here were going to the Circle Bar yeah. and catching like uh, Doctor Gogo, yeah, and then the Dan- mod dance parties were so. Yeah. Like they were, they were great. They're still going. I yeah. mean, it's, it's still, and it's still awesome. They just have um, high ceilings in the circle. Bar right. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. Um, it doesn't rain inside anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I have lots of good memories of that part. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of the transplant thing, I, I'll, there's two things about that. One, one is that the tipping point for me in terms of, I mean, it used to be weird if you weren't from here. It was, it's, it's a place because it, it's so dysfunctional. It's such a profound, it's a magical city and also profoundly broken um and we've touched on that a lot yeah, this podcast. i imagine <laughs> uh that's the price you pay to live here mm-hmm. and to experience the beauty i do think it's the most beautiful city in the world i also think it's not america but that's <laughs> a whole other podcast conversation <laughs> so um the i was at a bar i was at a restaurant in the uh in the ninth ward in the bywater and this big top came in and they were celebrating because someone had just bought a hotel on Magazine Street. <laughs> and uh, huh. they were asking the server, who was a friend of mine, um, if, uh, like, you know, well, what's it like in this neighborhood with this very, like, manifest destiny kind of attitude of, like, we just bought a, a hotel. What's it, what's it like in this side of town? Like, what, what can yeah, we, what can we buy? Yeah, what should, should we buy hotels here, yeah, too? Yeah, right, right. And so... so they she, probably have since then. Yeah. yeah, right. And, she, and, and my friend was so... She was clearly disgusted um and sh- and she also she's l- lived in mid-city she's like well i don't live in this neighborhood but you can ask and she lives in this neighborhood and so they turned to me and they started asking questions and and one of the women was like where are you from and i said i'm from here and she said oh my god you're from here that's so cool and I, I was like it's it's not cool it's just an objective fact like yeah. you're you're from somewhere and i'm from somewhere but it was the first time that it occurred to me that it was becoming that was just the moment where I was like, wow, like it's now it's cool. It's cool to be from here. Like that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that is, that's hard. Like it's like at this point, I even like, if I meet someone from Mississippi, I feel like they're local. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that's, that's irritating. Yeah. But this point of um, feeling like a lot of artistic um, bandwidth is taken up by out of towners. I blame New Orleans for that, which is, I mean, and it depends on the, the genre that you're looking at, but um, there's this thing about like, artists like from new orleans new orleans doesn't give a shit about them until someone from out of town venerates them and huh. then they're cool but it's it's and it, this is probably true in a lot of like kind of smaller communities but it's like it, yeah and if you're from here everyone assumes that you're shit because we have such an underdog complex it's like if you're from here it's probably not very good but like people who come from la and do something it's like wow a real artist mm. so i'm just you know waiting for the moment when for someone from out of town acts like they care about anything that I made and then maybe <laughs> <laughs> from Columbus, Ohio. And then your DJ. family will appreciate your uh, choices. All right. Well, that's perfect. Uh, I was thinking we could go ahead and wrap up on a, on a slightly lighter note. Uh, let's just talk about, uh, we've all been to many heat waves. You've been to all of the heat I've waves. I've been to all of them, yes. uh, Cole has been to many of the heat waves. Yes. I've been to some of them and have some great memories oh, of the heat waves, yes. of course, too. Uh, so why don't we, uh, and we love lists on this show, too. Oh. So um, let's talk about Favorite songs to dance to at a heat wave? Oh God! You know it. It really it changes over time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just right now <laughs> I'm really obsessed with "She's Got Everything" by The Kinks. Like mm. I just can't stop thinking about it. Um, so that's something I look forward to playing to. 
Uh, that's I got that record pretty recently, so that's that's something I'm stoked about. Oh, there's a song. Oh no, I'm gonna forget the name of the artist. The song's called "You're No Good," and Terry Riley did this incredible. Not the like, you're no good, you're no not good. Not that one, not that one, not that one. That's a good song too. Okay. But this is, it's a different one. I, I play I play a cover of it by yeah. the Swingin' Blue Jeans, I think is the name of the band, and it's totally danceable. Okay. Uh, people, people sing along. But this one, so Terry Riley did a like 28-minute um, remix of it in the 60s. It came out in like, I don't know, 67, and he did this like weird analog remix in 68 and that's incredible but the original and i don't remember the name of the band but i got that record recently that's rad i've also been um playing impeach the president by i think it's royce c and the honey drippers (laughs) that it's so it's so funky that everyone just dances to it they're like yeah this is like I want to dance to this and I and I'll ask I'll pull people aside and be like can you hear the lyrics and they're like no I'm like they're just saying impeach the president over and over again. <laughs> that that gives me a lot of pleasure um I'm trying yeah that's a that's a pretty good that's a pretty good list how about you Cole? I think the one I mean there there are a lot you you have a a, a very deep collection now and you I like the way that you usually structure heat waves. So the first hour doesn't it doesn't usually kind of really get rock and roll. If we're going from ten to two, which is what you usually do here mm. at Twelve Mile Limit, yes. the first hour is not usually the busiest. So you'll pull out a few more deep cuts then, and then sort of uh, and it, it get into the deep catalog. And there there are a few that like I, every time I hear, I'm like, oh, this one. And like, but <laughs> there are songs that I mostly only hear at Heat Wave, and there's some they're really great ones. But I can't think of anything off the top of my well, head sing, from sing that specific bars. category. Yeah. Um, but the song that uh, I think I, I I don't know if I'd heard before, I, I probably heard before, but I, I always I'll, not always, but I frequently hear it at Heat Wave, and it just always makes me happy and like puts a little pep in my step. And I've added it to a couple of my own playlists. <laughs> um, is Breakaway. By oh, yeah, that song's so yeah. good. She's, yeah, she's such a great. I haven't played that in a while. Yeah. Anyway, the no no part is very good. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that that's one. I mean, there's there's some others, um, but that's and I, I would say uh, on behalf of my darling wife, um, anything off of the Dirty Dancing soundtrack yeah, that, <laughs> will make her night. That soundtrack is. Um, you know, Be My Baby actually has been mm. something that I've been really excited to play uh, pretty much every time. That that soundtrack is like the Bible. And like, mm. also that movie is good. It's a good <laughs> movie. I didn't see it until I got engaged. It was one of those things where it was like, oh, this is one of my wife's favorite movies. And she was like, oh, you've never seen it? We should watch. And I watched it and I was, I was expecting it to just be like dated and weird. And uh, watching it, it was like, there's a lot of nuance and subtlety. Like, I mean, it's, it's definitely I, like all about abortion too. And when that's I great. worked here at Twelve Mile, <laughs> if Dirty Dancing was on, it was always on the TV. And when it comes down to the final like thing, music goes off, volume goes up on the. <laughs> <TV>. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, so like, the last twenty minutes yes. are like sound on. It's so good. Uh, that of, and Armageddon, the two movies. Oh god! Uh, apparently, like <laughs> I, just, terrible I movie. Had, like, five, you know, I was saying the same thing, and then some people were really into it, and then I turned the volume on the variant, and people were crying. In here. We had like oh. five people in here, and there's like, at least one person shedding tears. And no. And then I was just like, wow, that's amazing. So for me, uh, I love it. Like, um, I feel like you do a great job of putting in songs that (laughs) 
people know well, but you contextualize in a way that like uh, they, they they're fun. Like you know, like yeah. like you'll drop in some Neil Diamond and just like you know what? I would never typically dance to this song. I don't think I would want to hate on Neil Diamond a little bit. But it's like now this completely works right here. That and for some reason, every time you play Paperback Rider by the Beatles, too, yeah. I never think of that as a dance song for some reason. Like because I think it's just the Beatles not as particular. Well, I mean like later Beatles. Yeah, the, right, that yeah. was like, right when they were sort of transitioning to weirdness for yeah. a while. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It's just it's kind of a cool jam to like play right in there. Too. I'll tell it's, you too. It's definitely it's got some. Pro- it's propulsive. You it, know, it's, it's got totally, energy. The two those two. So I play Cherry Cherry by Neil Diamond, mm-hmm. which is, song is so good, and Paperback Writer, and both of those. Like you, I play solo here now. I, all my sets are by myself. But um, when you play with another DJ that you really love, watching what they pick and watching how the crowd reacts to it, I. So both of those were songs that Adam Scopa, who was my bar trivia drummer friend, who was like, I'm my dream. Mm-hmm. And he named Heatwave. So those were records that he played that, um, like, I, you know, obviously, like, love uh, Paperback Writer. But to, to to see people go bananas for Paperback Writer, <laughs> you, and you wouldn't have, I would not have guessed. I would not have guessed. Uh he also one time played, he was like, I want to play only songs during my set that like I've never played at Heatwave before. And he played Lucille um, by Little Richard. Oh, and I love people, that song. People went like bonkers. <laughs> and and then, and so I made, of course, like a huge mental note, like always play Lucille by Little Richard. People <laughs> went crazy. And then at the end of the night, Adam was kind of drunk and he was like, what was that song I played that went really well? I was like, are you kidding? Like, how is that not seared into your memory? <laughs> the crowd reaction was so good. So yeah, Paperback Writer is one is one that you're, you're like, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily think it was a dance track, but it kills. So um, I, I'm always interested, too, because a big part of DJing is being able to read a room and be able to control it. Um, I'm sure, like, not every heat wave is a banger or every time you've DJed, it's been a complete banger. But is there ever is there a song or a record that you would go to if, like, nobody's dancing, everybody's kind of hanging around? It's like, it's like that middle school that, dance. Let's get this thing. party started. Yeah, is that that <laughs> record where you're like, okay, got to put this one so, on? So the way it works is this. There's nothing I can do when people aren't ready to dance. I can't make them dance. Mm-hmm. You and, don't have those powers. Uh, I have a lot of powers, <laughs> but one of, one of my powers is to tread water until they're ready, mm-hmm. and and to give to put them in the mood to get ready mm-hmm. to dance. So that's what I'm doing for the first hour. It's not that it's not busy; it's that they're not ready, and I can tell when they're ready because they'll start kind of wiggling body parts while they're like seated, or sometimes you'll see people kind of come into the middle of the room and kind of like like they're trying to dance, and so. So I'm looking for physical cues that they're that they're ready, and then I have songs that kind of warm warm them up as they're becoming ready to dance, and then I have songs that war- once they start once they dance, I warm them up to sing along, and then I have songs that I'll play. So so the so the moment of throw down like let's get this party started is not like they're not dancing; it's like they think they're dancing. Mm-hmm. But they're not really dancing yet. Like you think you're having fun, but you're wrong. <laughs> now you're gonna have fun. And so, um, for a long time, "Run Around Sue" was my like oh, okay. was my like song that was like, all right, now they're ready. They're really warm. They're already dancing. They're already singing. They think they're having fun, but now they're gonna have like next level fun. Um, "Ain't Too Proud to Beg" has been that song for a while, mm. also. Um, yeah, All time. yeah, it's a great that, song. That that one, people know it from like the first drum hit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not even like the fill, like the first drum hit. It's mm-hmm. crazy. It's so, and then they and they get they get the words, like, like in sync. It's and the, it's like kind of a hard start too. They, I yeah. just it's so good. I don't know. They have like a weird spidey spidey sense for Ain't Too Proud to Beg. <laughs> I love that song. So yeah, 
So that's how that works. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. That's great, great yeah. insight into how that works. Yeah. So just know you're being manipulated, people. When you go, when you go uh, to a heat wave, you well, so, you know, some DJs don't, but they're bad DJs. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely it. I mean, you have to read the room. It's the whole job is to read the room mm-hmm. and you know respond. So, so uh, <laughs> I think that's great. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, yes. We're going to surprise you here a little bit in case you've never listened to our podcast. Uh, we like to wrap up our show with a segment we like to call "Parting Shots." Okay, uh, and it's really just your opportunity to uh, plug anything that. Uh, you are into at the moment. Uh, definitely, you know, reintroduce yourself to our crowd, and maybe just leave a little pearl of wisdom for people to take home with. Oh them. wow! Okay, um, geez. Well, I just I just finished a show um, called Known Mass Number Three Saint Maurice. Catchy title, I know. Uh, so if you, I don't know if you're interested in looking at weirdo dance stuff. I always collaborate with great musicians and visual artists. Um, and so you can go to um, my website anglaviano.com and check out all the, the dance stuff. There's like on the front page it's got like writing, dance, and music so you can ch- choose your own art adventure. Uh, so there's that. Um, geez. What am I... You know, this is this is like like very lukewarm take but um, the, the woman who was the fiction editor at Southern Review out of um, Baton Rouge it's a literary, very good literary journal, and she got scooped by the Paris Review to be their editor-in-chief. And I subscribed to the Paris Review for the first time just because this woman is running it. And um, and then I haven't been keeping up with it. I haven't really been reading it. I just wanted to support, you know. But I just read the first issue that she published, and it's amazing. Like, it's so good. So anyway, not like, read the, subscribe to the Paris Review. Like, hot take. <laughs> but no, like, I, she, like it's legitimately, like, I uh, my subscription is about to run out, and I'm going to renew it because this issue is so good. So that's that's something. I don't know if you like reading. Um, it's, it's nice because if you don't ever read poetry, this doesn't require you to, like, go find a book of poetry to read. It's, like, scattered in between interviews and you know stories and what so uh and then you're like there's this like two beautiful poems and you're like oh my day is so much better now that i read these two poems so two poems is about my threshold for poetry that's every it's because it's it's compressed it's intense you need like time to sit with it if you read a book of poetry you've really just like read one poem and then wasted a bunch of time Steve, you got a you got a parting shot for us today? Oh, your baby's cute as hell. That's it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I was, was going to mention that in my parting shot. Uh, hi, yeah, you already beat me you, to sir. it. Yeah. Uh, no. Um, uh, once again, thanks, uh, Anne, for coming on today. Uh, I, I really like the way this conversation went, and I think that uh, oh, if good. I could, like, <laughs> you, know, this, this is you can't, can't love them all, right? But, <laughs> no, I, um, I I think that like really the touchstones that you pointed at. I think this shows the journey of somebody who like you know has creativity that maybe was not fostered as much as it probably should be you know so first of all you know if there's people in your lives who are trying to make creative endeavors you know give them vote of confidence support their yeah. creative endeavors uh second of all uh if you are one of those creative producers as well too, value you yourself and know that there is an ability that you can make that a bigger part of your life and that it's worth your time to pour you know your time and your efforts into those endeavors yay yeah that's all yeah do that do what you want in life <laughs> that's short. That's not true. Unless it's you're long. a serial There's killer so and arsonist, don't yeah, do that. Don't I mean, do that. Yeah, don't. Yeah, don't. Don't. I mean, arsonist. Don't. Don't hurt anybody. <laughs> but everyone's got to have a hobby. Don't kill people, though. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I'm consistently impressed with uh, with your ability to 
live what seems like a very self-actualized vision of your life. You know, that the, everyone, the, I've talked about self-actualization on this podcast before. That's awesome. That's, but, that's my favorite thing to talk about. But the degree to which your vision of an ideal life matches up with the life that you have is a measure of happiness. Uh, and you seem like someone who is living a version of your life that is probably much closer to the ideal version of their life than almost anyone else I know. Um, and it's very impressive to watch. And kudos. That's why I want, we wanted you ha- to have you on the podcast. That's, we could break down the secrets to your success. I don't success. know if I did a good job breaking them down, but it is, tr- it is true. It is how I feel. I love all of the work I do. I love my clients. I love the art stuff I make. I love my art community. I love being here and talking to y'all. I mean, I, and I don't, I don't, uh, other than like having get shit done itis and believing that you can like figure clarity on what you want and then just gunning for it. I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of that's like the deep <laughs> secret. I'm glad we talked about it for an hour. <laughs> Longer than an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, anyway, that's a good place to uh, Also, yeah, for those of you who have uh, keen ears, you may have heard my uh, six month old son is sitting in with us today, maybe from time to time moving forward. So, uh, say hello to Felix. Um, he's an associate producer now on this show. <laughs> so, yeah. hey, hey, everybody. I'm Felix. I'm a baby. That's Felix. <laughs> All right. That's a great place to wrap up today. Uh, I'm Steve Yamada. I'm T. Cole Newton. This has been Around with Stephen Cole. Thanks a lot for tuning in, y'all, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. The theme music for Around with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. A big thanks to all of our listeners and supporters. If you would like to become a supporter of Around with Stephen Cole, visit us at patreon.com slash ARWSAC. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.